Um, I was on vacation last week in North Carolina and uh, with my family. My family comes down from, uh, my parents and my sister comes down from Virginia. We go up, we meet on the coast in North Carolina, spend a week on the beach together in a beach house. Now, my family, we are big, big readers. We read books, a lot of books. And um, we have, I have uh, five nieces and nephews on my sister's side. And I have two kids of my own. And um, when we got there, we took a moment and everybody like unpacked the books that they brought. And we like put them all on the coffee table in the living room. <laughs> and the books seriously like stacked like from, from here, like the stack of books was like this tall of books that we all brought to read. And so we all just jump in and we just read. That's what we do. We sit on the beach. We go swimming. We eat, uh, uh, we eat good food and we hang out and we read books together and talk about them. And I read a book last week uh, that was, I didn't bring it. Somebody just kind of put it in my hand. It was by uh, a Swedish author and the book was called A Man Called Ova. And I think I have the book title for you. The, uh, that's, the, that's the name of the book, uh, Frederick Bachman. And it's a really good book. It was really uh, sweet and, and, and at the same time very, very powerful just because of some themes in my life. And um, um, I want to show you, I, I knew that there was also a, a Swedish movie that was out. Uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And I'm just going to show you the trailer of the movie, and then I'll talk about why it's relevant for me today. So let's watch this trailer. Förbjudet att köra bil i det området. Men du kanske inte kan läsa svenska skyltar nu. Jo, det kan jag. Men är du blind kanske? Är det jag som kör? Hunden ska sluta pinka på våra plattor. Lyssna inte på den elaka gubben, Prins. <skratt> Anders, såg du vad gubben gjorde? Vad gjorde du med hunden? Det är väl ingen hund. Ser mer ut som en vinterkänga med ögon. 27 augusti så lånade min trädgårdsslang. Behöver den nu. Ska du vattna nu i mars? Du, om du vattnar dit så vattnar jag mitt. Vad är det med dig egentligen, Ove? Jag vet vad det är. Du är rätt salarist. Rädda livet på honom. Honom. Rädda livet på honom, heter det. Saknar dig. Det är inte så lätt att ta livet av sig som man tror. So, um, you know, again, just because of some stuff, you know, that's true of my life, you know, um, I will tell you that, like, I've only ever actually, like, actually cried uh, reading a handful of books in my life, and that's one of them, uh, especially fiction books, you know, but because of where I'm at in my life, really spoke powerfully. We came home and watched the movie. Shane and I are both just like, we're just wait, couch. We're just like on the couch, blubbering our eyes out. Um, there was, there was, uh, there was a, a phrase that just jumped out at me 
um, in the book a couple times. And, and um, it's when the, the central character, Ove, is he's thinking about his father. And, and his father kind of raised him. And, and, uh, and, and, and he was asking about why his father, you know, he asked his father, why do we do this thing instead of this thing? And uh, his father simply said, because we are not the type of people to do this thing. You know, and I won't tell you what it is, just for spoilers. He said, well, why wouldn't you do that? And he said, because we're not the type of people who do that. And that really resonated with uh, Ove's life. And, and he kind of passes some of that on. And it really, really resonated with me you know, for a variety of reasons. But it also connected with me about what we're talking about especially as Lori alluded, you know, the fact that we call God our father and we have this father and, uh, and I think sometimes our father says to us in various forms, we are not the type of people to do certain things. You know? We're the type of people who do things and don't do other things. And, and that led me to thinking about a, a dear friend of ours here in Tallahassee um, that we've walked through a lot of life with um, in a variety of circumstances. And, and she was just one of those people, and she is one of those people that just, we always admired uh, her, her character and her principles. And, and we knew, I knew her parents as well. And we used to ask her, you know, like, how did your parents, you know, raise you so well, you know? And um, especially when we had, when our daughter was going through uh, junior high, which can be a really challenging time for a parent with a daughter, Right. And so we would ask our friend who was more our age, well, how did you end up so right? You know, what did your parents do? And, and she's, you know, was very, very wise. But she said, you know what? She said, one of the things that my father did every time he dropped me off, uh, every morning when he dropped me off at school, as I got out of the car, he just said, remember who you are. He said, remember who you are. There was not a lot of lectures. It was basically just saying, you know, you're part of this family. You're, you're a part of who we are. And now as you go through your life and as you go through this day, your first job is to just remember who you are. So with that in mind, I want to take a look at this, this text. Um, and, and I'm going to read through pieces of it. And uh, there's so many themes that come out uh, in this text. Some of them we will be dealing with in, in a few weeks. And, and it's all kind of interwoven. I want to focus on a couple different things this morning. But John, who, who is writing this letter to this community, he starts off uh, again and he says, um, listen, every person who practices sin commits an act of rebellion and sin is rebellion. And he says, you know that he, and he's talking about Jesus, you know that he appeared to take away sin, sins and there's no sin in him. And every person who remains in relationship to him does not sin. Any person who sins has not seen him or known him. Now, John's drawing some really hard lines here. But when we started this series off, uh, I kind of threw out the idea that when you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible, it's very important to remind yourself of the context. What is being written? What's going on? Why is John writing this? And um, he's writing this to a community that is being fractured. It's, it's, a, it's a community that is being divided. And there's a group of people that are leaving. And as they're leaving the community, they're actually saying a lot of controversial things about what it means to follow God. And, and we can only piece together what exactly they're saying by the, by the stuff that's here. And so we think that because of the content of this letter, we think that they might be saying, look, you know, it actually doesn't matter how you live your life. God loves us and that's cool. 
that, that the way you behave in the world has nothing to do with your relationship with God. And John's saying, no, actually, that matters an awful lot. And we think sometimes that they might be saying, actually, you know what? Actually, um, sin doesn't even exist for people anymore. We can do whatever we want. And John is saying, no, actually, there is something called sin, missing the mark. And John is, is drilling at home. I don't know um, if you've ever, if you had siblings or if you have children, but um, if anybody as a parent ever get a phone call, like when you're out at dinner, your kids are at home because they, they're old enough to be by themselves, but you get the phone call that's in the middle of the argument, you know? And you're like, hello? And they're like, you, you know, my brother's doing this and my sister's doing this. And you're like, oh my God, really? You know? And I know I, I was a source of those phone calls when I was younger. And so maybe if you're not a parent, maybe you can at least own up to the fact like, yeah, I've been the source of those phone calls. And as a, as a parent, you know, there's only so much you can do trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, but you've got strong words nonetheless, like some form of wait till I get home. <laughs> so John, in a sense, is not with this community. And it's gotten to his ears. Look, man, there's people and they're saying this and they're saying that. And John is doing the first century version of the telephone. Look, this is what I'm telling you is important. And oh, by the way, and if I show up there, you know, someone's getting spanked. I don't, well, um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But John is drawing hard lines here because something is going on and he has to speak into it. All right? So he's say, saying things very, very forcefully. He goes on uh, in verse 7. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The person who practices righteousness, this is the behavior thing. The person who practices righteousness is righteous. And in this, it's, he's righteous in the same way that Jesus is righteous. And the person who practices sin belongs to the devil. If I could say it another way, again, imagine this phone call thing of a, of a child calling their parent and they want to know who's right and who's wrong. And John is basically saying, look, church, you are right. The people who've left you, they are not right. He is assuring them, you've stayed in community. You're following Jesus as best you can. You are the ones who are doing the right things. The people who have said sin doesn't matter. The people who have said we can, we can love God without loving our brother and sister. John's saying, no, 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 no. They are not on the right track. So uh, he says so much. So he says the one who practices sin, they belong to the devil. Because the devil has been sinning since the beginning. He's reassuring this church who is right. And who's in the wrong? God's son, Jesus, appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And then this is the statement that I really want to uh, sit with today. Those born from God don't practice sin because God's DNA remains in them. They can't sin because they are born from God. Uh. That is, a, that is a, a powerful, unique, amazing statement. And, uh, and so what I want to do is, is unpack it in a few different ways and, and talk about uh, what John is getting at and a couple different themes and then draw it all together. Now, 
The first thing that I love about what John says, uh, for me personally, is uh, it happens both in verse 5 and then again in, uh, verse, uh, in verse 8, okay? Um, where he says Jesus appeared to take away our sins. And if you've grown up in church, you, know, you might be inclined to go, oh yes, amen, I get that, right? It's about, you know, Sunday school answer or, so, or something. But actually, the, the thing that I've been thinking about is actually the way I usually grew up in church was that, um, just to kind of like throw out some theology, was that actually Jesus died to take away my sins. Anybody ever heard that? But John says, actually, Jesus' appearance on earth does something to take away our sin. And for us at E3, uh, it's one of the reasons why we say this repeatedly. Jesus' life matters just as much as his death and his resurrection. You see, the whole, the whole operation that Jesus came here to, to do, it started with his actual birth. Not just the cross and not just Easter, the resurrection. But there is some, something fundamentally important to us as humans in Jesus' life. And I think it's really wrapped up in the idea of Jesus shows us What's possible when a human being just pursues God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus' life is meant for us to model. or for it's, Jesus models his life for us. We're meant to emulate it. And when we do that, we actually make progress in how much this thing called sin impacts our life. It's one of the fundamental things we believe at E3. You don't have to wait to go to heaven to experience the life that God actually wants for you. You can start now because Jesus' appearance on earth and his life actually has something to do with destroying the power of sin in our life. And that is uh, amazing and important and it forms the basis of of why we call people to growth groups, why we call people to serve, why we worship together. Because all of those things help us. But there's more. So the first thing I want to do is actually want to point out something kind of funny about this statement. In, uh, in verse 9, he says, uh, those born from God don't practice sin because God's DNA remains in them. They cannot sin because they are born from God. And everyone goes, amen, awesome, yes, get it. You know the only problem with that? This actually almost directly contradicts something that John has already told us. Let me show you. Uh, in chapter one of the book, John writes twice. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then right after that, he says, if we claim we've never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you get that there's this tension. John said, look, if you say we don't have any sin, you're a liar. But then just a little bit later, he's like, look, um, if you sin, uh, you can't be 
born, you can't be a part of this. There's no way. And like, I believe that tensions like this don't necessarily need to be glossed over. We don't necessarily need to settle for the easy answer. And, and scholars would tell you, look, we don't really know what is all behind this. There's some things in the Greek verbs that you can say, well, maybe John is talking about like habitually sinning, doing things over and over again versus like a mistake that you make once. Or, or we think sometimes he might be talking to different groups of people, but we don't know any of that. Because the text doesn't really tell us. All we're stuck with, on one hand, are these tensions. Where John says on one hand, look, if you claim that you don't sin, you're a liar. If you sin, you can't be part of what God's doing in the world. Oh my gosh! Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in the middle. Um... But that's not such a bad place to be because of what he says immediately after that. He says, God's DNA remains in us. And I want to suggest to you that that is the phrase that I want you to carry out of this room today. God's DNA, uh, other translations say that God's seed remains in us. And what I want to do is just spend a couple, a couple minutes unpacking what that means. What does it mean that God's seed is inside us? The first thing that it means is, is it, it, can, it means God's tribe. God has a tribe of people and we're a part of it. So in, in John's gospel, the, the, the good news story he wrote about Jesus, Jesus says over and over again, look, God's tribe is this tribe of Abraham. And he says, look, you could be a part of God's tribe. And when you're a part of God's tribe, you're a part of God's family. And there's an identity that comes with that. And God says, look, in Genesis 1, this is the thing. He says in Genesis 1, we're going to create humanity in our image and likeness. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, we're going to create Methodists or Baptists or Catholics or Orthodox or non-denominational people in our image. He says humanity is created in our image. Now, there's a nuance to that because God says, just because you're part of my my uh, physiological family, uh, you don't always necessarily carry my likeness. But there is a, a reality to live in that all humanity is created in God's image. All of it. Not just the people who seem to be on the right side of the theological fence. It's all there. There's a nuance to it, but it's all there. And the nuance becomes a little bit more easy to deal with when you just think of the word that, like I said, is in other translations. It is the seed that God's planted. So here's what I would say. There's not a human being on this planet that does not have God's seed planted inside them. Now, if you know anything about seeds, seeds are about potential. 
and they're about growth, and they're about what can become. And that's a different story and a different process, but the reality is there is not a person that you've ever known or ever will know that does not have the DNA of God planted inside them. Now, some of them are waiting for some fertilization. Some of them are waiting for some water. Some of them are waiting for some sunlight. But it is all there. And it's there for you, too. It's there for all of us right now. And so uh, what I want to do, actually, is, uh, is I want to kind of uh, do something a little bit different for us. I want to invite you to close your eyes right now, if you're comfortable doing this. And as you do that, I want to ask you a couple questions just to think about. And the first question is this. What do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about Jesus? What values are there? What activities are there? What words would you give it? And what I want to tell you is that whatever words, and as a person of faith and as a follower of Jesus, I would say the words that come into my mind are words like compassion and love and healing and transformation and growth and potential. All of those words reside in you right now. The seed of God, the DNA of God, means that what was true for Jesus The potential that's there is there for you. And that's pretty powerful. Now, with your eyes still closed, I want to ask some of you in this room maybe, if you've ever acknowledged that gift. Because the seed is about potential. But I would also suggest that what's required to start realizing some of that growth and transformation is that you have to say yes and acknowledge the seed. So I just want to ask you simply, have you ever acknowledged the gift of God's DNA? And all you have to do is to say yes Maybe just right now here in this moment and say, God, I say yes to the DNA that you've put inside me. And would you grow me now, God? And would you help me reach my potential? You can open your eyes if you've had them closed. That's, to me, the most amazing part about when John says you have the DNA of God in your life. Yes, we make mistakes. We do. I do. I've probably made 10 already. And it's not even, well, it's 10 (laughs) o'clock. But the DNA of God lives inside of me. 
The seed is true. Which brings me back to that book. And I can trust that essentially my life with God sometimes revolves around God saying, Eric, um, we're not the type of people that do this or do that. And sometimes I don't like to hear that. Sometimes I'm like, well, God, I really wanted to be angry here. I really want to do this. And I have to sometimes sit there and I have to hear God say, but Eric, um, you see, you have my DNA. And we're not the type of people that do that thing. Our family is different. And with his love and his kindness and compassion, he reminds me of the type of person that I'm called to be. And it looks a lot like my savior and my uh, the scriptures say, my brother, Jesus. And that is good news to me. We're not the type of people that are hateful. We're not the type of people that are angry. We're not the type of people that are hopeless. That's not our family. And the potential that God's given all of us is to every day grow into more of our family name. More of our family name. So it's not about what we call sin management. Oh, how good did I do today? Did I sin today? Let me give you the answer. Yes, you did. (laughs) You take the scorecard and you wipe it away. You take the scorecard and just wipe it away. God's like, it's not about your sin. It is about Are you realizing the potential of the seed, the DNA that I put inside you? And that's good, good news. 